I've been a pastor for almost 20 years. This October will actually be my 20th anniversary. And in my recollection, I have never been in a time when people have come seeking not only spiritual advice, but financial counsel as well. I mean, the economic times that we're facing are driving people to ask very tough questions about how do you combine financial management, spiritual wisdom, and God's plan. My previous experience has been anytime I say the word stewardship, people freak out. It's just, it's like, oh, you got to talk about that. Really? I'm not inviting any friends until you're done. That's kind of the response. And I prepare myself for, you know, I get emails and, you know, do we have to talk about this? Here's the deal. We have not spoken of this topic in 55 weeks, according to my calendar. We don't talk about it all the time. And I have never had a time in my ministry where people would come and say, when are you going to talk about stewardship? Because I need some answers. My financial world is falling apart around me, and I don't know what God wants me to do. There's a high level of desperation. And so we're going to walk. We have two weeks left in this series. Then I'm going to tell you what's happening next. We're going to do a three-week series on the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's a doctrine that we have to know. And then we head towards Easter. We're doing a six-week series called Crossing the Line. And we're going to celebrate Easter during that time. It's going to be fantastic. But over this week and next week, just a little two-week shot, I'm going to respond to those of you who've come up and said, can you please talk about this? You asked for it, I'm going to give it to you, all right? But as we get ready to talk about one of the most controversial topics in your whole Bible, I want to start this morning by making some confessions, because I think it's a good place to start. Confession number one is this. I'm not speaking for anybody else except for myself. Confession number one is I've got deep issues with the way stewardship is portrayed and taught on television. I don't watch Christian TV, unless it's Veggie Tales. Talking French peas, that just does something for me. I don't know, I think it's cool. <laughs> Tomatoes and cucumbers, that works, all right? I don't watch Christian TV because it seems like it's only a matter of time until some big, sweaty, screaming dude from the South looks into the television and shakes his finger and tells people that if they will just send him a love gift, that in return, he will send them a bottle of genuine holy water, a vial of oil from Israel, a rock from Jerusalem, and a, and a mustard seed from the great state of Iowa. And then he goes on to say that if they are willing to send those things, that God promises to give them back something because they're planting a seed gift, and he will fix all of their problems for four easy payments of $29.95. Thank you, Jesus. And I sit there, and I listen to that, and I think to myself, my conviction, that is spiritual malpractice, and it breaks the heart of God. My issue with that teaching and that kind of stuff is that it creates the perception somehow that God wants everybody to be rich. I don't know how to reconcile that with the fact that Jesus was a homeless guy and died with nothing except your mind on his heart. I struggle with that because it creates a perception that no matter what I say about this topic today, if you're visiting with us, 
that you're going to walk out of here thinking, there it is, I knew it. The only thing that the church wants from me is my money. And that breaks my heart. Because those of you that come here regularly, you understand, it's been more than a year since we talked about this at all. I want to tell you something unequivocally. I probably can't convince you otherwise. I can only speak for this church because it's the only one I'm going to answer for when I get to heaven. And I'm going to say this unequivocally. The only thing that we care about at Christ the King is your soul. That's it. So that's confession number one. I struggle with that stuff. Confession number two, when I was younger, I was financially naive. I remember coming home from my very first trip to the car lot and saying this to my dad. No, seriously, dad. The guy at the car lot said that that price was just for me and that I qualified for extra special financing. (laughs) My dad's just like, dude, what are you thinking, right? Are you serious? I mean, as a younger person, I didn't understand. I didn't have a clue about debt or credit or budgets. People use this foreign word, savings, right? Some of you went, what did he say? I rest my case, all right? It's a foreign word. We don't talk about it very much. I mean, I used to use this cool system. I called it the Fishbook Financial Method. It went like this. If you're within 400 bucks, call it good, right? It didn't work very well for me at all. I mean, I was not a diligent earner. I was not a cautious debtor. I was not a wise saver. I certainly wasn't a prudent spender. If I saw something and I wanted it bad enough, I went and got it. It was just the way it was. In fact, the only thing that saved me from financial ruin was the fact that that I was born cheap. (laughs) I just was. I graduated from high school cheap. I got out of college on the cheap. I even went into marriage cheap. I came in with a, with a, with a 78 Honda and a, and a coffee mug collection. That's all I had, all right? I even went into the ministry cheap. And that's where confession number three for me gets very personal and somewhat painful. You see, I believed that I was financially exempt from God's plan. I've said this to this church family before. If you've been around, you'll have heard me say this been a pastor for almost 20 years. For the first nine years of my ministry, I lived in utter and complete disobedience to what God told me to do from the Bible with his stuff. I'd listen to pastors talk about Proverbs chapter 3, where it says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing. Your vats will brim over with new wine. I would listen to them talk about the principles of tithing. And in my heart, I would say, that is for everybody else in this room. But it's not for me. I'm going to take a flyer on that one. I think somehow I'm exempt. I don't like it. I don't like when you talk about it. I don't like when you make me feel uncomfortable by teaching about it. So you just need to go away. When they would talk about how... It was just simply God's plan. For every $10 that he gives you of his stuff, you give one back to him. That's the simple principle of tithing. I'd hear that kind of stuff, and I'm just like, you know what? No. No. I remember the moment that I had to confess to my wife that I had been spiritually negligent and disobedient. I was doing the books in my family, which made no sense at all because my wife's an accountant, right? The $400 method, that doesn't work good when your wife's an accountant, I'll tell you that much, all right? 
I was doing the books and I was keeping a secret. My secret was that I believed that because God had my talent and because God had my time, he better keep his fingers off of my treasure because that was my stuff. I thought the verses in the Bible applied to everybody but me. I remember being confronted about 11 years ago by an elder in my previous church about my disobedience. His name was Alan, and he came to me one day and he said, you know, Grant, I'm not really disappointed that you don't practice what you preach. That's kind of sickening. But I got over that. You know what I'm really disappointed in? I'm disappointed in the fact that you would be willing to cheat God out out of an opportunity to show you just how faithful he could be. And I believe the reason that I claimed an exemption was my fourth confession, which is that I bought into the ownership myth. Let me explain the ownership myth to you. Laurel and I got cell phones for our, kid, or for our kids from Christmas, all right? Our kids have crazy schedules, and we finally got to a point where we needed them to be able to get a hold of us whenever they needed to, and so we drank the parental Kool-Aid and we gave them cell phones, all right? And now they sit around and they talk with their thumbs, right? In my day and age... The word okay was spelled okay. Apparently now it's just K, all right? And if you don't understand that, you're older than I am, okay? And we have counselors available. All right, so the other day, my daughter comes down, and McKenna just, she's bound, and she asked a very innocent question. She goes, Daddy, have you seen my phone? And something just tweaked inside of me. I'm like, your phone? Your phone? It's not your phone. That's my phone. As long as my name is at the top of that particular bill, that's not your phone, that's my phone. And just in case you're wondering, as your gracious, benevolent, loving father, I've decided to give you the gift of that particular phone, and I've decided that if I want to take it back anytime I feel like I can, because it's not yours, little girl, it's mine. I think I scared her. I mean, it's okay, right? But we all do it, don't we? That's my house and my car. She's my wife, and those are my kids. And it's my wallet, it's my time, it's my life, it's my treasure. So who in the world do you think you are to tell me what to do with it? Because it's mine, mine, mine. What's the very first word we learn as children? Mine. It's like when we were kids and we used to talk about my room. That's my room. That's my space. You need to stay out of my room, right? My space means something different now. Now it's a thing on the... Yeah. If you don't get that one, (laughs) then you're older than I am too, all right? So, wow. When I was about 17 or 18 uh, years old, I figured out that I had a problem with my space, my room. It was under Ernie and Shirley Fishbook's roof. It wasn't mine, but I acted like it was mine. So just so we can clear this up once and for all for every single one of you, everything that you attach the word mine to is not yours. It belongs to God, and He gave it to you. Every time you say the word mine, you're lying. The very first week we started talking about this, We took our hands and we talked about how as the family of God, we're never allowed to do this. God just doesn't want us to do this, that he always wants us to stretch out our palm and and to share whatever it is that he's placed in there. Last week, Pastor Sam took your hand and he turned it up this way and he talked about biblical worship and just what it looks like. 
Well, this week I'm going to take your hand, I'm going to turn it right back down, I'm going to get it right up close. Because everything that you can see existing inside of the palm of your hand right now, that's how much you actually own. Nothing. It's not yours. King David has a problem. He's the king of Israel. He's living in a grand palace. That's where we find him in, in the book of Chronicles. He's living in a palace, but he's got a problem. And the problem is this. In his conscience, he can't reconcile the fact that he's living in a palace and God's still living in a tent. It was called the tabernacle, but it, that's what it was. It was a tent. That didn't sit well with David. I mean, he, God in a tent? That's just not cool when you're living in a palace. Let's just stop there for a second. I'm going to show you just how practical Scripture is. David wasn't happy that God was living in a tent. Where does God live in your life? If I looked at your calendar, where would I find God residing? Only between 10 and 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning? Really? What do you do with the other 167 hours? If I went through your checkbook, which I never will do, but if I went through it and flipped through it, where would I find God in the middle of His stuff? You know, some of you are thinking right now, oh, better be careful, Pastor. This could get personal. You know, let's make this personal. Let's make it unbelievably personal. I was working with a young man and his wife this past week. He has just recently accepted Christ, and they're trying to do everything that the Bible says that they're supposed to do. And he'd heard from somebody that there were some financial things that he could work through. So we sat down and actually started going through his budget. And as he was going through line by line, because they've been affected by this economy just like everybody else has in this room. As they're going through it, tears start pouring down his face, and he says this to me. He says, Grant, according to these numbers, I love God less than my need for cable television. That's where God came in. Where's God living in your life? right below your need for wireless internet? Maybe just a little higher than your need for a nice cup of Starbucks in the morning? Where does he live? David can't stand the fact that God's living in a tent, so he decides to build him a house. God comes to David and says, David, there's actually a problem. You're a warrior king, you can't build my house. I mean, if you read the history of King David in Scripture... He's got a higher body count than Clint Eastwood. I mean, seriously. It's just a lot of people died when David was around. God tells David he can't build the temple, and that would throw most of us, but not David. No, David actually responds. He goes, cool, if I can't build the temple, my kid Solomon's going to do it, but Solomon's going to need some help, so I'm going to lead the fundraising drive. It's an incredible response. And at the end of this amazing financial effort, David actually prays, and out of his prayer, we realize that David figured out how to bust the ownership myth. Instead, out of that prayer, he figures out the ownership truth. Let me give you the two elements of the ownership truth. The first one is this, everything belongs to God. First Chronicles 29, 11, the Bible says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O oh Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Do you see what it said? It says everything in heaven and on earth is yours. I've got to ask you the question because I ask myself, do you see your name mentioned anywhere in that verse? 
Is there a footnote at the bottom that go, no, 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 this little piece over here, that belongs to Fishbuck. It's not there. Everything in heaven and on earth is yours. So everything belongs to God. And then he goes on and he teaches everything comes from God. First Chronicles 29, 12, he continues to pray. Wealth and honor come from a bunch of guys in suits that live on Wall Street that I've never met before but are supposed to be managing my money. Is that what it says? Wealth and honor comes from you. You're the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, I want you to remember something. David's the top dog in the kingdom. He's the king. He's at the top of it. He rules a kingdom, and yet he makes a declaration. None of this belongs to me. I'm not an owner of anything. Let's break this down a little bit. I mean, what's an owner? An owner is a person who owns. It's not a trick question, okay? An owner is a person who owns. So if I'm not an owner, if this is all I have, if I'm not an owner, then what in the world am I? The Bible teaches us that we're all stewards. A steward is a person who manages another's property or financials affair. So let me break it down for you. God owns everything. You own nothing. God takes some of what he owns and he entrusts it to you to look after for this little blip that you call your life. He can give it to you. He can take it back anytime he wants to because he actually owns it. It all belongs to him and he dispenses it to you as a sacred trust and you're supposed to use it while you're down here for his glory and for his purpose. Let's go one step further because we're not just stewards. We're supposed to be biblical stewards. Here's my definition of a biblical steward. It's a child of God who aggressively manages and invests God's blessing for God's glory. Everything that I'm doing and working with that's not mine, I'm supposed to be leveraging with everything that I have so that the owner of it all is proud of me. So here's a question for all of us. How are you stewarding what God has entrusted to you? Have you slipped across the line into ownership? Is there something going on inside of you right now going, yeah, I know that that's what the Bible says, but it's mine. I worked for it. My blood, my sweat, my tears. Let's stop there for a second. The blood running through your veins right now, how'd that go for you when you were putting that in there? It's not your blood. The sweat that ran off of your brow came out of a physical body that you were exerting. Did you invent yourself? I don't think so. It's not your body. That means it's not your sweat. In fact, the person who even gave you the air to put inside of your lungs, in and out, he owns that stuff too. Not your body, not your lungs, not your air, not your effort, not your blood, not your sweat, not your stuff. That's what Scripture says. Some of us slip over that line into ownership and we just get all bent out of shape. And I figured out I wasn't an owner about 11 years ago. I finally got with God's program. Just in case you're wondering, the day I came to Laurel and said, hey honey, by the way, I've been a pastor for nine years, but I've been ripping God off. That did not go well for me that day, all right? That was not a good moment. So Laurel and I started tithing. 
You need to know what that is? It's pretty simple. For every 10 bucks that God gives you of his stuff, you give one back to him. It's pretty simple. I started peeling my fingers off of God's stuff. And you know what? I was a little disappointed by what happened. We're talking confessions. I thought God would fire up the heavenly marching band in my honor because I finally got with the program. I mean, I thought at some moment I was being obedient. I wanted some kind of a shout out from heaven. I'm like, woohoo, Fishbook finally got it. Let's give him a new Mercedes, right? That's kind of what I was thinking. <laughs> and we laugh, but that's kind of the understanding, isn't it? God wants some of his stuff back, so I'm going to give it to him in cash. And you know what I'm expecting? I want the return and the kickback in cold, hard cash. You know what I realized? God says he will provide. And sometimes he provides financial blessing. And sometimes he provides financial understanding. And sometimes he provides joy and peace and love and grace and mercy. And sometimes he simply provides you with the amazing feeling that happens in the bottom of your heart when you meet somebody else's need in Jesus' name and they have no idea what you just did. God gives in all kinds of ways. I was kind of disappointed. The reason I was disappointed is because of my fifth confession. I treated giving as a spiritual finish line, not a starting point. That's not the end goal. That's the starting line. You say, where do you get that from? Grant 1 Corinthians 8. The Bible says, but just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now, when I was a new believer, this just rocked my world. That a God who had everything would give up everything to come. He would become poor, literally, so that he could Bring my soul back to him. He left everything to save me. If he left everything to save me, why in the world would I try to withhold something that doesn't even belong to me? Why? 2 Corinthians 9.15, the Bible says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I mean, this is amazing to me. Every single time, God asks his people to do something tough. And this is not easy. This is hard spiritual discipline that we're talking about here. But whenever God asks us to do that, this is what amazes me. Jesus puts up his hand and says, I'll go first. We're coming to Easter, Good Friday. We're going to celebrate and remember and mourn over the fact that Jesus said, I'll go first. If you need an example of what kind of giving I'm willing to do and that I require of you, just watch me. I will pay the price in literal blood, literal pain for you. Last confession. I've spent years being afraid to talk about God and money. If you've been here before and we've ever talked about this topic, I think you've heard me say this. I haven't liked talking about the topic for one reason. I want people to like me. All this week, God's been asking me a tough question. Hey, Grant, where do I live in your life? 
And if I was to be honest, God has spent a large portion of my life living right underneath of the opinion of the people in this room. Not anymore. See, this morning, I'm going to stand with David. Because at the end of his fundraising effort, David stood up in front of his people. And he said, I just blew up the ownership myth. And I'm not going to live with the failures of the past. In fact, I'm going to stand tall in front of every single person today. And I'm going to ask some questions that are hard heart questions. First Chronicles 29. It's on your outline, but I would love it if you would just listen to what King David says to his people and to himself and to God. He says, who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. We've given you only what comes from your hand. We're aliens and strangers in your sight, as well as our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple in your holy name, it comes from your hand. It all belongs to you. I know, my God, you test the heart, are pleased with integrity. All these things have I given willingly with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O Lord our God, of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. This is not my music stand, it's God's. This paper does not belong to me. It's God's. This microphone is God's. This stand is God's. These chairs are God's. The human beings in them. You belong to God. He's given himself to you so that you can steward his trust. If you don't walk out of here with anything else this morning, I hope you will walk out with this truth. Stewardship is a matter of the heart, not the wallet. You say, where in the world do you get that from? Matthew chapter 6. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Christ the King, where's your heart today? I know some of you are thinking, are we in financial trouble It's Christ the King? No. That's why it's good. This is not about your wallet. It's about your heart. Where's your heart? Is it stuck in ownership? Are you like me? Were you trying to claim an exemption? Were you just hoping this is for everybody else in this room, but it had nothing to do with me? And I'm going to tell you something. Different pastors do this different ways, but I have no idea who gives what around here. I made a decision six years ago that I was never going to look at the financials of this church. You know why? Because when I look at you, I never want to see a dollar sign. I want to see your heart. I want to see your mind and I want to see your eyes. I have no idea. You know why? I don't want to know. Because someday when you stand and give an account before God as to what kind of steward you were with his stuff, I am not going to be in the room. I'm not going to be standing in the corner going, oh man, I'll pay money to watch this one. 
Come on, Jesus, throw this one down. Talk to this cheap guy. I'm not going to be in the room. And you know what? When I stand before God and answer for him about my stewardship, you're not going to be in the room either. This is between you and your Savior, not me and you. Some of you are here today and you're visiting and you're thinking, And I've probably just confirmed some of your suspicions. There's probably nothing I can do to convince you otherwise. Uh, If I counted right, it's been 55 weeks since we've talked about this topic. But in a few moments, I'm hoping that if you're a guest here, that you're going to have a moment that you're not going to quite understand. Because in a few moments, we're going to get to apply this. I know some of you are thinking, Grant, you never told us what the actual plan was next week. Some of you are just thinking, I found something else to do next weekend. Yes, I did. (laughs) But in a few moments, we're going to give back to God our tithes and our offerings. And I'm going to say something to the guests and visitors that I say every week. I'm going to say, If you're a guest to Christ the King, would you do us a big favor and be our guest? Because we don't want anything from you. In fact, we're going to ask you just to let the offering pass you by. We don't want anything from you at all. My friends, do you know why I get to say that every week? I get to say it every week because of the stewards in this room who have decided that this is a safe place for their investment. If you're a faithful steward of Christ the King, I'm going to say something to you. Last weekend, when person after person after person went through that baptismal tank and we celebrated the life transformation, do you know who made that possible beside Jesus? You did. Because you helped pave the way in some small way that moment, as much as it belonged to them in that spiritual milestone, it belonged to you. And from the bottom of my heart, as the pastor of this church, thank you. Thank you for doing what you can to make that happen. Thank you. Some of you are going to go home today and you're going to struggle. Just like I used to struggle every time I drove home after hearing one of these messages. Because I think God's got a question for you. Where's God live? You can claim an exemption if you want to. My prayer is that you won't. So we're going to pray together. And then I'm not going to say my little spiel. And maybe this weekend you'll get to understand even more the heart behind it. Would you pray with me this morning as we close? God, this is tough stuff, especially in light of what we see happening around us in our world. God, I pray for those who are struggling this morning some with their reality and some with the fact that 
that God just came and asked them a really hard question and they haven't got a very good answer. God, I pray that they would feel your love, your grace, your mercy and your hope and that in this moment they would know that they can place their heart where their treasure is. God, I pray for those who have faithfully followed these principles, some of them for years. I thank you for their faithfulness and their trust here. God, I pray that as they watched all of those people baptized last weekend, that they would know that their stewardship of your stuff is making a difference. God, I pray that none of us would try to bob and weave on this one. I pray that we would have an honest conversation with God Almighty Himself. And that more than anything, that we would be obedient. Knowing that you said if we obey, that you'll provide. So God, help us to trust you and walk with you, and celebrate with you, even when times are tight and tough. And we pray these things in your precious, holy, and life-giving name. Amen.